it's really designed for people whose wheels have come off. You know, the first half of life has is ending in a, in in an abrupt unraveling, and rather than trying to put the brakes on, this program sort of does the opposite, lets that stuff run, opens up a conversation about soul and underworld and the unconscious and dreams, and that's part of the reason why I'm into Jung now. Uh, was was through this program, and and I'm I'm continuing on that path. Listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome back. Once again, through the wonders of technology, you and I are together in this strange podcast space, uh, which I love, but I do not fully understand. I really don't. I, I, it, the way this whole process works is somewhat mysterious to me. Uh, the other day I was listening to an episode of my podcast hero, Mark Marin's show, WTF, and he was interviewing somebody who I'm not intrinsically interested in. It was the actor Neil Patrick Harris, um, who I don't know much about except that he was on Doogie Howser way back in the day. And I, I turned it on primarily because I had a certain amount of time and that was the length of the podcast and it seemed like a good idea at the time. And sure enough, they had this kind of fascinating conversation about growing up and coming of age and identity formation. And, you know, two thoughtful, smart people talking is, is one of the most interesting things in the world as far as I'm concerned, especially when one of them's Mark Marin, who just knows how to kind of take take somebody through that kind of conversation. I mean, that's that's why he's my hero. I'm, I'm really trying to learn how to be a good conversation facilitator. But at the end of the show, um, during the outro, uh, Mark starts talking about, well, I hope that worked. I mean, we're in this new studio and it's not the old garage where I always used to work and I'm feeling a little bit uncertain of myself and I don't know if this is working, if it sounds right. And I realized that he had changed something and that had created a certain amount of insecurity. And that's, I, I could relate to that because I think we've changed some things about this podcast recently. We've brought producer John Wright in on the Q&A shows and we're doing the alternating formats and I think it's working, but I don't know. I mean, more people are signing up for the Patreon thing, Patreon thing, I always say it wrong, and so that, that's an indicator that people are finding value in the podcast. But I don't know if other people are quitting and going like, I liked it better in the old days when it was like more homespun. I don't know. Um, and I mean, people are great about sending emails. I get lots of emails from Humanize Me folks, but I never know if they're representative, you know, because you get one email for every thousand people out there. You, you don't know if that's the outlier or if that's the representative sample. So we're doing the best we can, but there are no faces to read. There's no vibe to pick up in this room. So, so yeah, I hope it's working for you. Um, you know, but change, the, the thing is, is that you can't not change a podcast because even if we kept everything the same, I'm changing all the time, picking up new stuff, doing different things, like, like, thinking things that I thought were going to work didn't work and, 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 and vice versa. One of, the, one of the interesting things that's just become a part of my life recently that I had no anticipation for, but I'm kind of getting into, is that a few months ago, somebody from the American Humanist Association sent me a note asking if I would be willing to be listed as a humanist celebrant since I perform weddings and, 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 and have presided over funerals and that kind of thing. And I said, sure. I, I mean, honestly, I didn't think anything would come of it because almost all the weddings and funerals and things like that I've done, I've done for people that knew me and that asked me to come because of that, because of our relationship. Um, but sure enough, about a, a month later, I get a call from this woman 
who says, my husband just died and we have to have a funeral next week. And I wondered if you would be willing to, to do it because we don't, we're not church people, we're not believers. And, and we just didn't know who to turn to. So I found this list and you were on it and I called you, would you be willing? And I said, sure. I mean, I had the day free and, and, and I, I went over to meet with this woman in her grief, having lost her husband. And it turned out to be kind of this wonderful experience, wonderful opportunity to sit with somebody who was hurting. She had just lost her husband, but she was also reflective. And, and my job was to sort of find out who he was so that I could eulogize him, tell his story. And I got to know her. I got to know their love story and how they got connected. And it was interesting and gritty and, and meaningful. And then later on, you know, at the, at the service itself, this, you know, a hundred or so of his friends and family. And, and there I am a, a complete stranger trying to help them remember and reflect and, and release this man who I never met. But by the end of it, I felt like I had really come to know. Um, and so, you know, and death is a, death is a powerful thing and, and it's a huge part of our lives. And to have the, the privilege of participating in this thing was, it, I ended up thinking like, this is a really good thing. I hope more people ask me to do this. And, uh, and not, not even a few weeks later, I got a, or a few days later, rather, I got an email from, from one of our Humanize Me people saying, hey, you you did that show with the suicidologist, but I think you need to do another show about suicide because I have suicidal ideation. And when I was a Christian, I knew what to do about that. But as a secular person, I'm not sure what to do. And I, I wondered if you would do some research and kind of try to you know, give some thoughts there. And by the way, if you, if you've been missing the Ingersoll quotes, I've got one at the end of this podcast, it will be coming up and it actually touches on that whole notion of comforting, um, the, the survivors of a suicide. Um, but, but I, I was just thinking like, yeah, I want to get good at talking about this stuff so that I can offer comfort. And then, you know, and then just yesterday I got called by a woman inviting me to marry her and her fiance, who are a young couple just starting their journey together. And again, like they're, they're not believers, but they're excited about not just loving each other, but they're excited about becoming a team that will make the world better for other people. And they saw, they checked out the, they got from the, AHA site to my site and they saw kind of the stuff we're doing and they said, yeah, that would be a good person. Let's have him. And so I got invited to celebrate this, this wedding and I'm excited about that too. I'm going to go have coffee with this couple and we're going to talk about their lives and how they got together. And then, you know, to weave that together into a ceremony that actually sort of sends them off in a good way. And that, and, and, and it creates the basis of a meaningful celebration. I don't know, like I'm kind of into it. Um, you know, I, I remember when I first started doing counseling and coaching of people, which is something I had never thought about doing, um, on, in a regular way with regular clients. And, and, and after a few weeks of doing it, I was like, oh my goodness, this is another way to communicate hope. This is another way to create, to make some meaning or to, or, or to pump some goodness in the universe. And like all pumping of goodness, it's fun. When it, it's fun to see the impact. I mean, it's not always fun in the moment, but it's fun when you start to see like we human beings are capable of making each other's lives easier or better or more comfortable or more beautiful. And uh, when you find a way to do that, I was, I was talking with a friend of mine who's a gardener and, and who has done some gardening for older people who can't garden for themselves anymore. And, and she was talking about, yeah, it's just a way of, it's a way of touching another person. And when you find a way of touching another person that you can do, it's pretty doggone exciting. And uh, I kind of hope that for, for you as you're listening, that you're thinking, okay, I'm probably not going to become a celebrant at weddings and funerals, but, but gardening maybe, or, you know, 
teaching kid to ride a bike. Like, they're like, I wonder what I, I wonder how I can touch people's lives. Because I think that that's the thing is that throughout our lives, we gain and lose abilities. Um, and we have to keep finding, okay, given the person I am now, how can I, how can I touch other people? How can I experience that charge that comes from knowing that I'm making a difference in a positive way? All right, enough of me waxing eloquent. I'm actually, that's not actually the worst lead in because the conversation I've got to share with you today is with um, Kent Dobson. And, and Kent Dobson is a name that it, 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 he, he was at one time the pastor of the Mars Hill Church that Rob Bell was one time the pastor of. And just as Rob was the pastor of the church and then sort of made his transition, Kent was the pastor of the church and he's made a transition. But it's not exactly like mine. Maybe not exactly like yours. And I, I, Ken had sent me a copy of his book and I, I, I read it and then I, I heard him talking to a comedian named Pete Holmes. And I thought, yeah, this is a really interesting person. I should, I should talk with him. And I think you'll figure out on this podcast that like we've kind of gone on similar journeys but not ended up in the same place. And yet there's a kinship. I mean, and, you know, he, we end up talking about Israel because he's been there and I've spent time there. And we're both thinking about that, especially in this moment when Israel's in a very different political space relative to our country than it's been in a while. And, uh, and anyway, I, I think you'll like Kent. I sure liked Kent. And, uh, and then on the other side, uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll catch you back with that cool Ingersoll quote I mentioned. All right, so here's me and Kent Dobson. Let's go. Hey, good to talk hey. to you again. Yeah. Thanks good for doing to talk this. To you. Yeah, I appreciate it. So you're, you're in the middle of spring in mm-hmm. Michigan. Mm-hmm. Which is a glorious moment, isn't it? It is. And it has been a very long winter and spring just sort of came out of the blue. We had snow already in, in April. And so all of a sudden now the season has turned and turned quite quickly. So it's magnificent. You, you forget you're from the Midwest, uh, I mean, I'm I'm originally from the East Coast. Then I lived in Cincinnati for like nine years, went to LA for three years and just moved back. I'm so happy to be back. And what's funny is like, I had such a, we had such an insecure time in the three years we were in LA, a lot of wonderful experiences, but like getting back here, like when it's ridiculously humid here, Mm -hmm. we just look at each other and go like, yeah, that's why we can afford yeah, <laughs> you know that's why we can afford to, to go out to dinner tonight. Is because it's so humid, and when it's freezing cold, we're like, you know what? That is the that is the temperature of accessibility. Seriously, yeah, yeah. That's actually a great way of looking at it. Although you know, the winter can blind you from that truth, <laughs> and, <laughs> and you think, what? Why the hell am I here? This is so painful. And you didn't grow up there, right? Like you, you, you came from the South. Yeah. I mean, it depends. It depends on who you talk to, what qualifies as the South. But I, I grew up in Virginia. My wife is from Georgia. So, um, we're both sort of not from northerly climates. So yeah. that makes it hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, and now I know you're, like what town, are you still living in Grand Rapids, even though you're doing this other thing or did you move? No, I'm still in Grand Rapids. I technically live in Ada, which is like, uh, just, it's not really a suburb. It was founded before Grand Rapids. It's just a tiny little area just outside of Grand Rapids. And I have a couple of acres and a garden and some giant trees. My house was built in 1850. So it's a farmhouse. It's, it's a, it's a cool spot. That's for sure. So all these changes that you've gone through, you've, that you've, you've been in this one place. Yes. Although, you know, it's funny. It's funny when I was a pastor, it was awkward meeting people in the grocery store. You know, like one time I came out after preaching like a Sunday night service and I had like, um, I had some friends over and I had four cases of beer sort of stacked up in my arms, you know, like going to the checkout area. 
And, you know, someone's like, oh, you know, they just had this look like, oh, well, <laughs> do you have some kind of problem? <laughs> but, <laughs> um, and, you know, you just can't get into this business. Oh, no, I, explaining yourself like, oh, I'm just having some friends over, you know, but you feel watched all the time. And I felt that a little bit upon abandoning ship. You know, when I see people from church world, it's a little bit awkward, but I feel more at home. So it's really not, you know, I'm like, whatever, like there they are. And it's always like, what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know. What are you doing? You know? <laughs> so yeah, you're, you're... yeah. Anyway, it, I feel a little more comfortable, although I can't say we'll be here forever. It's just the spot where we can afford to make a living and we have three kids and, um, but we're always on the hunt. I, I think for, I don't know. Oh, oh, really? Like, you're not like, this is, this is it that like, you're not completely settled there. Well, I think I just have that sort of perpetual, um, wander lust that rises occasionally. And so it's sort of a, just an unfolding conversation. Um, it's so funny. Of, how, yeah. how old are you? How old are you? I, I am. How old am I? I'm 41. Okay. That makes sense then. <laughs> no, just because like, well, I'm 55. <laughs> okay. And as a younger guy, my wife and I, we, we moved, um, a lot. Mm-hmm. And when we, when, and when I was, I moved from Phil, Philadelphia to Cincinnati about 12 years ago. And it was because like I was going through a midlife crisis and like, I just wanted to go back and live and work with poor people. And my wife was like, that's fine. As long as we do it in a place where we can live in community with other people. Mm -hmm. So we moved into this neighborhood in inner city Cincinnati where we had friends Mm -hmm. and uh, we're there for nine years. And it was like a big radical move. Like I shut down my mission organization. Like I walked away from everything. We started completely from scratch in an empty abandoned house. Like, you know, had to rehab it. I mean, it wasn't, it was basically a shell and we put in, you know, like we lived on the third floor while we had a guy come in and like redo the whole house. And it was like, I did all this demo and it was crazy. And when we were done, I was like, that was, that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. So then we moved to LA nine years, you know, then I lost my faith completely and I ended up out in LA. And when we moved back here, like literally as I'm sitting here, I'm covered in soot because I'm demoing a new house, a new old house. I'm doing it all over again. And when I was like in my forties, like when I was like 41 and I did it, it was cool. Mm-hmm. And now I'm just in pain. Yeah. I'm just like, why did I ever do this? Why did that I ever so blow funny. up my life? And so all I want now is stability and the idea of, Hey, yeah, you know, we're always looking for the next thing and stuff like that. Like, I'm so hoping I never have to look for a next thing again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's actually great to hear. I mean, I, we went through a similar kind of thing. I, we moved a bunch back and forth to Israel. And when we finally settled down, we lived in downtown Grand Rapids and went through this whole rehab of the house kind of, it was a disaster. Finally got it done and sold it and then bought another old house. Um, and I don't know, I, I have a similar feeling like, mm, this is not as much fun. This is not as cool. Uh, demoing a bathroom is not as cool as it was even just a few years ago. So at least 10 years ago. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, I, I mean, it's fun. Like, I mean, I, 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 my, my hands don't work anymore. Like, but I've, I've sprained both my wrists so many times. Like it's just pain right now. Um, <laughs> my, my nephew, my nephews came out to help me. Like they're like 22 years old and they both worked for Habitat for Humanity for like four years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they're just, animals and you know i look at them and i just go like yeah i remember that i remember when i could work all day <laughs> um, but but so 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 when you transitioned out of that church mm-hmm. i mean if somebody says to you like what do you what do you like like if somebody at the church says so what are you doing now what do you tell them okay here's my standard line i'm doing about five things and you that will sometimes end it right there <laughs> because they won't say what are they. Yeah, just... like, oh, five things. Good. Oh yeah. Okay, good. I was looking for a number. I... <laughs> <laughs> so, and then I sort of, you know, like if it if it goes into further detail, I'll say I'm working for a place called C3, which is a little 
um, non-church church, which is about 45 minutes away in Grand Haven. Um, they used to be a church and 10, 15 years ago, I never even heard of them. They took the cross down. They sold their building. They dropped all their doctrine statements. They said, we're a values-based community. It's half atheists, half Christians slash former Christians, mostly older people who have been sort of in the progressive world for a long time before I even knew what that word was. They were marching. I'll give you an example. One of them said in, in, in a conversation not that long ago, when we were marching with King, I was like, what <laughs> you mean? <laughs> it's like, Oh, I see. This is not a new fad. Um, anyway, I learned about them. I'm giving you a lot of detail, but I learned about them. Um, after I left, after I left Marcel, they called me and said, Hey, you should come out and just teach one time. We gather every Sunday in this community center. I was like, Oh, okay. I did it twice. And then they said, Hey, we're look we're looking for somebody to do half of the teachings because they usually just rotate different local people every week and they want a little more of a stable voice. And I thought, you know, this could work. Um, but I don't give people all that detail. I just say, I'm doing something for C3. I teach there. And then I've got book things and I occasionally retreats and programs and Israel trips. I still do. Um, so that those are the things that I'm, that I'm kind of juggling. And I make a, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. And I make a podcast. Yeah. I make a podcast, but not that that's, that's just pure fun. I just like it, you know? Okay. So like I knew we were going to talk about this and we might as well talk about it now. Mm -hmm. Um, because I don't know if you know that like right after I, was completely done being a Christian. Mm -hmm. I spent three years kind of working on the fringes of the Israel-Palestine conflict with, um, first on, I was on this project called the Abraham Path mm -hmm. Initiative with a guy named William Urey, who you may never have heard of, but he wrote a book mm -hmm. called Getting, Getting to Yes, which okay. is like this big conflict resolution book. And he made gazillion dollars. And, and, and the Abraham path is this project he started to build like a walking trail, like the Compostello de Santiago, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. except mm -hmm. to have it go from like to follow Abraham's route from like all the way up in Turkey, all the way down to the Negev. Cool. Um, yeah, it's, it's, but of course you'd have to walk through like Syria, Lebanon, you know, the West bank, like it, it's not, it's not a full path yet, but, mm -hmm. um, they're working on it. But then I started working with this group called the Telos group. Oh, I've heard of them. Yeah. Um, and their big thing was, is that they were convinced that the key to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was American evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And they hired me because they, they were like, do you speak evangelical? And I was like, oh, yes, <laughs> I'm fluent in that language. Um, <laughs> those are my people that uh -huh. I, you know, I lived among for many years. And so, so I spent a, a reasonable amount of time in Israel, but I spent a lot of time thinking about what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And when I read your book, I was like, oh my gosh, like you have this deep Israel thing going on. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Go and ahead. so like, so anyone, like I have a, I have a medium grade Israel thing going on. You have a deep Israel thing going on and like, it's a mess right now. It's a mess. Yeah. Well, it's been a mess. All right. It's just erupting again, yet again. Mm-hmm. But this, I mean, this feels really, I mean, it's funny. My wife asked me about it the other day and I said like, yeah, all the time I was working there, the United States was completely pro-Israel, but they pretended they were a fair broker and that they cared about everybody. And mm -hmm. I said like the kind of the cool thing about Trump, and I never thought I would say those words, but the kind of the cool thing about Trump is, is that he's just nakedly honest about what he's doing. He's like, we're going all the way for Israel and we're doing it because of American evangelical stuff. It has nothing to do with anything else. Yeah. It's, it's scary how straightforward he's being about it and those in his circles. I mean, yeah, if you think about Obama, I mean, Obama did nothing for eight years. I mean, really, can you think, I can't even think of one thing that moved the process in any direction. And other than, you know, he withdrew some funding here, there, he put pressure, but all that kind of very subtle, um, behind the scenes really did nothing. I mean, at least in my view, no, uh, not a thing. And uh, at least, at least Trump is blowing things up enough where some of the truths are beginning to surface. You know, and for a long time, I've said, um, I actually never understood this with my Israeli friends. 
Why do you accept the support of American evangelicals? Do you understand their eschatology? And they kind of, some were like, no, not really. That doesn't make any sense to us. And others were like, yeah, we kind of get it, but who cares? Uh, you know, of course they think we're going to convert to Jesus. He's going to appear in the sky. But if they give us money, if they support us, if they help the American government, um, keep us from another trauma, which I think is behind the deep Israeli anxiety is yet again, another trauma. Um, even though they often inflict now <laughs> traumas on the very, on their neighbors, um, Anyway, they just like, we'll take the support however we can get it. And they sort of wink. It seems oh, yeah. to me. When like, I was going to tell us, it was crazy because, you know, you'd be like, you know, the Americans all, you know, the American evangelicals, they, they want Israel to occupy the entire land between the river and the sea mm -hmm. so that Jesus can come back and send all the Jews to hell. Exactly. Yeah. Well, some, just, some will convert. <laughs> some will convert. Yeah. yeah. Some will say, oh, we were wrong. Sorry. Others will just burn, burn in hell. So, okay. So that's one of the five things you're doing mm -hmm. and C3 mm -hmm. is one of the five things you're doing and, and some of mm -hmm. these books and the podcasts, you're doing all these things. Mm -hmm. And, and I guess in some ways I feel a certain affinity for you or with you, because I feel like that's a little bit what I'm doing too, is I'm, I'm mm -hmm. trying to cobble together some things. Yeah. It, it sounds like a really dumb question, but like, how's it working? Well, <laughs> um, it's not working in the sense of it's very clear I'm on a career path. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but it feels I'm, I'm finding a way to um, bring more of who I'm learning I am into the world <laughs> in authentic ways. And um, the year that I left Mars Hill, I entered a year-long program with a cohort of 11 people. And we met in these different sort of wild landscapes. And um, it's really designed for people whose wheels have come off. You know, the first half of life has, is ending in, a, in, in an abrupt unraveling. And rather than trying to put the brakes on, this program sort of... Um, does the opposite, lets that stuff run, opens up a conversation about soul and underworld and the unconscious and dreams. And that's part of the reason why I'm into Jung now uh, was, was through this program. And, and I'm, I'm continuing on that path. I, um, I'm in their guide training program and it's not too dissimilar to taking people to Israel. You take people out of their uh, sort of, I don't know what you would call it exactly, um, their egoic personas, who they think they are in the world and their everyday uh, value systems and income. And, and you put them in a setting in a wild place or semi-wild place and you begin to have this sort of conversation between who you think you are and the world and nature. And um, it, just feel, that, it just feels right to me. So I'm in a training program to learn more about this kind of stuff. And, but I'm also a practitioner, not just like a this is the next thing that, you know, I can go and teach people. I am, um, I'm finding my way into it's it. Been, yeah. And how many years have you been on this? Um, like when, when did you leave Mars Hill? Oh, geez. Three years ago. Yeah. So I've been into it for probably four years, but three years more intensely. Uh, in, in June, I'll, I drive to Colorado and to, to do another training program. Um, so, I mean, this whole thing for you, it's like you're three years mm -hmm. in to, to kind of the other side. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think of it that way? Do you think of it like, I mean, I know that like, it, it, I, well, I don't know, but like for me, what's weird is I can tell you like the day I had my bike crash and sort of, I really, when I, you know, when the, when the final decision was made, but I look back 10 years earlier and I go like, gosh, like from where I sit now, was I still in then? And like, I would have told you I was in then, but from where I am now, it looks really different. Did, so like for me, it was a very, very gradual process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it was a gradual process for me with a few dramatic moments thrown in there. Like yeah. the, the day before I 
or just a few days before I started this year-long immersion program. The, the place is called Animus Valley Institute. So I don't know what I'm getting myself into. I'm a, I'm a bit afraid to tell you the truth, like um, what might come out. <laughs> and um, Who turned you on to it? Uh, I think Richard Rohr indirectly. He did something with Bill Plotkin a number of years ago um, where I think Bill Plotkin was talking about the soul and and uh, maybe Rohr was talking about the spirit or something like this. This is sort of two expressions of spirituality, um, underworld and upper world kind of thing. And I thought, whatever that other guy is talking about, I'm attracted to. That was Bill Plotkin. Right. So that was my first exposure. And so I just started reading his stuff and eventually signed up for a program. Or two. But, but you were anyway, a little scared when you were, when you were totally, being, yeah. totally. But then I quit my job just a few days before the program started. So it was like a convergence. I could have never planned this. It was just a convergence of happenstance and, and also maybe the mystery itself, whatever that is. And, and so that felt like not only am I quitting my job, I'm entering into this program. Uh, um, about a month and a half later, my dad died. So there, um, he had ALS. And so there was just all these things that were like, no, this is a transition. But inside, and even now, three years later, I still see it as a, like a pretty slow unfolding. Um, and sort of two steps forward, one step backwards, and um, a lot of confusion. And even now, you know, I wake up and I think, God, what? I I chose this, you know, what? Where am I? You know, there there are days when I wake up like that, like, how did I end up here? Do you feel like you chose it? Because like, I feel like it happened to me. Well, that's actually a good question. There were moments of choice, and but the choice felt like, are you going to follow what's already true? And in that sense, the truth was happening to me um, or are you going to placate, keep playing the game, not want to look very deep. And there were, there were moments of choice in there, but, but like, th other think, parts of but it think about it, Ken. Like, I mean, like think about who you were all the way back on your first trip to Israel or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, re like, are you going to play the game or are you going to follow the truth that you're already, that you, that's already within you? And you go like, really? Was there any chance you were going to just keep going? Was there really any chance? Like you might have decided one day to keep going. And then the next day you would have been like, yeah, I can't do this. Well, that's, yeah, actually, that's a good way of putting it. That's kind of what happened because in a sense, I wanted to be like this Ray Vanderlaan guy. I wanted to lead trips and talk. His, if I could communicate the essence of his spirituality, it was if you're passionate, then that equals the right kind of spirituality. So just yes. like really like, you know, like we're really going to do it like Jesus did it or something like that or fill in the blank. And I had to try that on almost like a hat, like, wait, because something in me did light up. I think what was lighting up is I want to live passionately in the world. What I want to live authentically in the world. And I had to try on that hat for a while, but it didn't, you know, it didn't fit. That's kind of what adolescence is like. And even though I was like a 20, 30 year old adolescent, I had to be like, well, maybe this is the right. That's kind of how I think a lot of people's spirituality or faith, especially if they're Christians, when it starts to unravel, they try on a, a bunch of versions of it's Christianity. It's like, it's like the grief process. You've got anger or you've got denial, anger, and then bargaining. Bargaining. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. You got to do a ton of bargaining. Oh, no, like, Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, you know, people, my, my, my thing was fairly open, but like, it's, you know, towards the end, it was so clear, like, you know, people, I, I remember I would go speak places and I would get thrown out for being a heretic and, and people would always act like I was trying to undermine their faith. And I was like, no, no, don't you see, I, I'm desperately trying to hold on to mine. Like I'm trying every version I can come up with. Like, I just want to stay a Christian. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, there bargaining. was a lot of bar. There's a lot of bargaining there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so, and and I guess the, the the interesting thing is like you you three years ago you quit the job, you go on this nature, you know, experience with Bill Plotkin, mm -hmm. and then and then your dad dies, um, which I you know is its own. I and mean, isn't it really interesting how like for almost every man I know. 
dad, like for better, or for worse, like, cause at my age, a lot of our dads are dying and it's just such a tectonic event, no matter how resolved they were in their relationship with their father. It just, it just shifts. Right. It just shifts the universe in some really weird way. It does. It shifts the universe. And, um, not only does, you know, your father die, but something of even your hopes for who your father could be also die. And, and that's, that's, you know, everybody has a father wound and that's just part of it. I mean, there's like a, um, you know, like a, a, a leaning or a longing that, and maybe it's a delicate balance between accepting who your father is and also wanting him to be something he's not. <laughs> um, yeah. All that is part of the the grief process. And it was a significant, I really tried to say yes to the grief. And, um, and one of the things that made it easier was just all the bullshit that was coming out of evangelical Christianity. He's not really dead. He's up there playing soccer. You know, you're just like, mm, that just deepened the grief. Um, rather than sort of turn angrily toward what a bunch of idiots, it, it deepened the grief. Like, well, that's, I don't find that to be true. And so what is, what's being lost here? And what am I letting go of? It was, it was, it also gave me courage too, in a weird way. Like I told my dad that, uh, I would, I quit Mars Hill before he died and he couldn't speak very well at the time because the disease had really started taking his voice mm -hmm. and um and he didn't say anything and i didn't need him to say anything and i even told him that i said i don't need you to have a response i'm just telling you i'm done with church i'm done with mars hill i don't know what i'm doing i'm gonna go into the unknown that's what i told him but even without saying anything some something significant was passing between us and and in a, in a way, it gave me courage to keep going. And then when he died, it was like, all right, uh, I'm not trying to carry on. So this actually just occurred to me recently because someone was asking me about it. Um, my dad moved a lot in his life from fundamentalist, moral majority, you know, to a, to a much more open version of, of the evangelical. And that was monumental. I, and I cannot forget that. That took courage in his own way. And in some ways, I'm just, <laughs> I'm still going, you know, just um, like, like Rilke, I live my life in widening circles and the, and I'm like the circles is, is widening. And, um, and I think his death was pushed me even further in, in a good way. And right about, about then I got a, a book deal. I wasn't even searching for a book deal. In fact, I said yes to writing a book um, before I really have an idea, which was kind of a, that's kind of a dumb thing to do. Someone's like, you should write a book and we'll, don't worry, it'll come. But it came and it came as part of some of these um, cutting ties. I couldn't have written the book without quitting and probably even with my dad dying too. The, the, I'm, I'm assuming this book, Bitten by a Camel, is the one that you got the book deal for that you yeah, wrote. that's right. Coming out. Yeah. And, and like... Have you read it since you wrote it? No. Do people do that? Every now and then. Yeah. It's funny. Like I, I, I wrote this book very painstakingly with my dad. It was a really awful process. I hated every minute of it and swore I would never write anything again. And I, I was actually on my way to a speak engagement and I had to do a talk about death mm -hmm. and I just was scattered. And, 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 I, and my wife said, you know, you did write a chapter about that. And I got it out and, and, and I read it and I was like, oh, there's the talk. It's right there. Um, hmm. And I, you know, and it was actually me, but like I started reading it again and it was really different reading it after mm -hmm. letting some time pass. I'll have to try that. I did an event in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago at a church, which I'm always surprised when churches invite me because I don't like the subtitle of my book, by the way. It says leaving church, finding God. That's not me. I did not come up with that. I thought that's presumptuous, but they said, look, we're a, you know, Fortress Press where it's a, it's rooted in progressive theology. So, and that's, and they were insisting, no, that's actually what you're doing, but that's neither here nor there. So I'm always surprised when churches invite me, but anyway, I was at the church and, and the pastor was interviewing me and he was reading some excerpts from the book. And my feeling was like, oh yeah, uh, 
that sounds true. <laughs> like to me, I, I would still, I still think that's the case. Um, in other words, I'll, I'll stand by that sentence, but I'm also not like, I'm just not that attached. I'm sure I would say it subtly different now, but I guess well, that, I, that's why, I, that's why I'm asking because mm-hmm. I, you know, it's fresh and, and mm-hmm. like, it took me a while to settle and like, I don't know. Maybe I would have said leaving church, finding God in the early stages. Like it took, you know, I, I'm so like, I'm so a non-believer. I'm so a naturalist. Mm-hmm. Like there's not, there's not a supernatural bone in my body left in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, but it took me a while to settle there and be able to talk about it. And so like, that's why I'm like, when you write a book literally on your way out the door, um, I'm wondering if like, if you pick it up now, if it, if it still resonates with you. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I I, see, I think, what was I doing? I was writing a book. You're right. I was writing a book on the way out the door, but I, I worked pretty hard to not just write like a fuck you kind of book toward the church. I wanted to say this did not work for me. And here's what didn't work for me. And some of it, I just had to work through. And I did have to talk about theology. I had to talk about the Bible. I had to talk about um, the afterlife. I had to talk about getting saved. I had to talk about end times. Why? Because those were just the ingredients in what very slowly became something I couldn't ingest anymore. But I feel like now that I got that out of my system, I wouldn't write that book again. There's no need to. (laughs) Um, It's But... I tried to write it as personal as I could for what things didn't work theologically. And at the same time, try to weave in there the real, the real enough story of, no, I, I'm actually leaving something, you know, uh, I'm not saying I don't like these ideas and here are five better ones. Although there's a little bit, I'm sure of that sprinkled into the book, but I wasn't trying to redeem the church in other words, or, or, you know, um, try to try to rewrite set theology back on the right course. I just was trying to say, this is what happened to me. And this is kind of how I'm thinking about it as best as I can get it into a sentence. And then when I'm done, I'll let that out in the world and move on to something else. So, so, I mean, but where do you, I mean, like when you go to C3 and mm-hmm. half that congregation are atheists and half that congregation are like some form of progressive Christian, mm-hmm. where do you sit? I don't think about it too often. I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. Why? Why? Does that sound like a cop out or does that sound true? Well, no, I mean, because you you run in Rob Bell land, you you, you know, and like there's this kind of like murky place where people like they love the mystery. And, you know, and, and sometimes I just go like, I don't, I don't know if it's just temperament. Um. There's this whole stratosphere of people who are sort of like, they talk about God like the way I used to call my car Betsy. I know it's not really an animate object with a personality, but like, I like to call it that. It kind of feels that way to me. Like, and, and there's a part of me that sort of goes like, but you don't really believe the universe has a personality, right? And they're like, yeah, no, we don't. And I'm like, well, then isn't that language a little confusing? Couldn't, couldn't, <laughs> you just, couldn't you just be clear about it? Maybe it's, I just want people to be like me. I'm just happy when somebody goes like, yeah, no, I don't believe in God anymore. Well, yeah, I see what you're saying. And Rob often will say something like, uh, I don't believe in that God. Yeah. Like, which, you know. Yeah. And I'm like, kick that can down the road, Rob. Like, could you just tell me, do you believe that there's a, a, a personal force at work in the universe? See, I can't say that. I don't. And also, I'm not. You can't say what this, you can't say. There is, or there is. There's isn't. a person. There's a personal force. I don't. I don't think about it that way. Um, it's also not even a major concern of mine at this point in my life. How um, now? That's another one. They always go like, "That's not my concern." And I'm like, if there is mm-hmm. a personal force in the universe, that's the most important fact in the universe. And if there isn't. That is also a hugely important fact in the universe. Like things are really different if there is or if there isn't. Yeah. I guess the closest I would come to um, like, how do I use the word God? I mean, 
I guess I mean mystery or I mean the universe. I mean the universe is sort of a an incarnate expression of some great mystery by virtue of the fact that it exists. And I guess my question would be, does it have an aim? That's the way I would put it. Does it have an aim? Like, you know, is consciousness really an aim or is it a random accident that there's such a thing as consciousness or right. is there an the embedded purpose? From, is yeah. there an embedded purpose to it or is it just happening? Yeah. And that I'm, you know, I guess the jury's out. Faith days feel like, no, it has a name and has a purpose there. It moves from simple to complex. Um, consciousness emerges, you know, I'm a huge Ken Wilber fan and, um, and he certainly has something like, yeah, the, the universe or the God mystery has an aim. We don't exactly know where it's going. <laughs> no one can say that, but it moves from simple to complex. And um, I don't think about a being making that up. I'm not into God as a being, but it's, I don't know. It's, um, and, and I'll tell you something else that's unusual or um, that's personal is that I was never that big into sort of the question of atheism, I guess, like that didn't keep me up at night and, um, other things do keep me up at night. And, and like one of the, one of my major questions is right now is like, what is the soul? Is, is that a thing that feels more like poignant and pressing and they're not unrelated this, the question of God and soul, I don't think that's what the mystics all say. Um, but that's more of like, what is this unique thing? Is there, is there something beneath our egoic personas? Um, and does it have a, an a, it, does it have an aim? Because that's what Greek, what the Greek myths say that the soul has a name in the world. Um, that's what Jung would say. The soul is something like an image or a series of images. And it, and it has, it wants to be embodied in the world in a certain way. And you can, you can not embody it. You know, you can fight it. Um, so these are, and these also funny thing are kind of like faith questions. You know, the question of was the soul is the same in many ways as what the question of, is there a God? You know, I mean, you're dealing with symbols and that's still my attraction to religion, spirituality, art, Bible stories are the archetypes and symbols and what they seem to, to be, they seem to be speaking in this language, the language of the unconscious and the language of nature and the language and the mysterious language of nature. And I, I want to learn to speak that language. Um, uh, so I don't know if any, if any of that is like, I don't know, it might sound like bullshit, but um, those are things that are, they're knocking around in, in my, in my head, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they don't sound like bullshit. I mean, see, you can feel relieved. Um, <laughs> but, but, and, and again, like, you know, it may just be temperament, but I think that that idea of, you know, what is the soul or, you know, it, it does seem to me to be an analog of the question, not necessarily, well, you know, maybe what is God, but also that idea of, is there an aim? Like, is there an aim to the, to the whole universe? And therefore like my soul would be a subset of that. Like is, does my soul have an aim within that larger aim? Like, am I part of the, exactly. you know, and uh, yep. you know, am I, am I a specific piece of the universe, you know, of its mm -hmm. overall intentionality? And I guess what's weird for me is, and maybe it's because I, you know, it's funny, like I would think like, you know, living in a place like Israel, um, for me living, you know, spending most of my life in, in lower income ghetto neighborhoods. Maybe if I was, if I took more hikes with Bill Kaplotkin, I would think differently. But if you just walk, <laughs> if you just walk in my neighborhood, like the idea that there's an aim to any of it just seems patently absurd. Mm. Um, yeah. Is that because the system has created such an unworkable, I mean, if you take an individual from the street, what I mean by soul is is there a way of being in the world that is right and meaningful and true, not without pain, but, and maybe the, the circumstances of life are so 
overwhelming. Like the survival dance is all that that is pressing that the sacred dance gets suppressed. That's my intuition. Um, and, and you see that with people who come up out of those circumstances for some, or become a voice for change. Like, well, where did that come from? That's what I want to say. Did it exceed, did it come from what we would call soul or even the soul of the universe itself wanting to bring something forth? Or is that just, again, a random, you know, somebody just got fired up and, you know, well, I, don't I mean, know. I mean, I mean, when you were saying like, is there something underneath all, uh, you know, the ego? Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm like, oh yeah, there is. It's called your brain, like, mm -hmm. like that's what's underneath it all. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, well, I'm not disagreeing with that. You know, this is that's why I mentioned Ken Wilber before because he has this. You know, one of his favorite phrases is "all quadrants, all levels." So of course, you better believe something like consciousness is in the brain. Absolutely. Something like your, your mythic image, um, you know, like the, sometimes we use this language in Bill Plotkin's work and a lot of people don't like it and I get it, but they say mythopoetic identity. In other words, is there some kind of identity beneath your egoic persona? Well, you better believe if that thing exists, it's, it's in the molecular structure somewhere, you know, it's, it's in, there's a subatomic piece to it. So yeah, it's all brain, it's all matter. It's, but it's not just that that's sort of the all quadrants, all levels. Um, and yeah, would it, would it, if the brain wasn't there, would it exist? Mm -mm, I don't think so. No, it's part of the dynamic, but in terms of being a meaning making human being, this is why I guess I'm, I'm still a person that you might be drawn more to the science and the logos that, that in the Greek sense of logic. Um, and I'm more drawn to the muse in terms of symbol, image, archetype, uh, art. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. resist. No, I'm going to resist categories of like that, and not because I think they're bad. That may might just be a temperament. Yeah, that that, and I, and honestly, like I'm not so. I mean, I I'm drawn to all of it. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm just an incredibly practical. Like all I really care about are human relationships and people enjoying the brief period of consciousness that they have. And so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very much like whatever works. Um, yeah. But is whatever works, does that involve, uh, meaning, meaning making? Yeah. Yeah. I mean like pursuing evidently, mm -hmm. um, because the people that flourish, the people that seem to enjoy their lives the most that experience the greatest level of well being there's a category of meaning for all of them. They, it, it happens in the context of loving relationships. It happens when they're doing yep. work that they think makes things better for other people. It happens when mm -hmm. they are grateful for the experience of consciousness. And that gratitude mm -hmm. is increased with a greater understand, like greater exposure to the natural world, greater understanding of how brains and bodies work and, and, and astral, you know, and, and, and astronomy, astronomy works and how, cellular structure works and so like yeah like mm -hmm. whatever like but but for me like all i really care about are are whether or not the human beings around me are are thriving or doing better today than they were yesterday or are doing better mm -hmm. as you know i just i just want to love people and, and you sort of go like well why and you go well you know it's like i'm 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 evolved that way. It's like, I, I also like puppies. <laughs> I'm evolved that way. Like, you know, it's part of your meaning making map. Yeah. But it's also like, it's just pure. Like there's a reason we like dogs in, in the, mm -hmm. like, like anth evolutionary anthropology. Like, like there's a reason we like dogs. And like, there's a reason why, like our, when we see a baby, like emotions well up within us. And I'm like, I, I embrace mm -hmm. all of it. Um, and so, and so for me, mm -hmm. whether or not like all that artistic stuff that you were talking about, if that works to make you nicer to your kid or a better neighbor or a happier person, then I'm like, mm -hmm. you go Kent. Like, yeah, you, yeah, I get that. Run it can that. also be a distraction, by the way, I'll be the first to admit, like, I think, um, another part of Bill Plotkin's work and also really good, um, psychoanalysis or psychotherapy anyway 
half of the battle is just human wholeness. Like, do I drink too much? Am I, you know, am I a good parent? You know, all of like sort of almost the non-negotiables that we all know about, you know, right. Oh, that, yeah. Jordan, Peterson, most, Jordan yeah. Peterson saying like, clean your room. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. And actually, in my opinion, what I would call going further on the soul path, which is a little bit more imaginative and mysterious. If your room is a mess, you're not going to go very far. I mean, I really believe that. And, and same if whatever you believe about God, mysticism and all this kind of stuff. Like also, if your life is a wreck and at four o'clock every day, you have to have five drinks. I don't care if you have a, a massive mystical experience standing in the middle of Manhattan, there's not going to be any integration. It's just going to be back to the, how do I get over my hangover in the morning? Yeah. So, and by the way, I don't care. Like if you don't believe in God and if you are a complete rationalist and you think you've, you know, you've eliminated all sorts of superstition from your life and you ha need five drinks in a day to get through it, like I don't care either. Like you're not, you're, you're not doing very well. Um, you know, you know that, that in some level it really boils down to like, do you need five drinks a day? Because mm -hmm. if you do, we need, we need to, to, to twist the knobs one way or the other a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. And, and cause, cause I, I really am like for me, I mean, it's funny, like, I, you know, I'm very aware of my aging body right now. Um, cause everything hurts all the time. And, uh, and I'm, 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 you know, my constant question is like, oh, well, how does a person stay upbeat and how does a person continue to relate well to younger people and all this stuff, like as their body deteriorates? Because I realize like that's where, you know, everybody over the age of, you know, 50 is easing into that space where it's like, yeah, that's the big question. And, and again, like whether archetypes or, you know, so, like nature walks or meditation or whatever it is that you're doing. I'm always interested in just like, yeah, how's that working for you? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, me too. And, and actually, I mean, we don't need to get into, this is a whole massive discussion, but if you think about just the archetypes of growing up from child to adolescent, to, to adult, to elder, those are just some Elders an archetype, adults isn't so much, but you know what I mean. I am actually very interested because I look around our culture and say, where are the elders? You know, they're, uh, what happened? So there's some kind of arrested development that seems to be, you know, um, rampant in just about every corner. And church is a, is a major contributor to this. Just, just stay in the belief system. You don't have to change. You don't have to grow. And it's just not serving people very well. And I, I do want to, to twist the knob um, just in, the, in my own life, but also as I at least try in my own small ways to help people move and grow and continue. Like, okay, so you, you're, everything in your body hurts. You're at a different stage in life. What is the task? What is the ask? How can you live a generative? How can you be a generative life-giving presence at this stage of life. I think those are like, what else are we talking about? <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the thing, like that is that question, you know, consumes me in, in a way that the question, you know, is there an overall aim in the universe? Um, I, you know, I, I don't see any evidence of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but, but I do recognize that for some people it is, it is a life giving question. You know, mm -hmm. and, and I think that I'm becoming increasingly, well, you know, when I was a Christian, I thought there, I, I was always searching for that one, the, the, the one true way of following Jesus. Cause like, obviously mm -hmm. like if there is a God, you know, if it felt like to me, like if there, if there was that evangelical God, there was one way I just, we just needed to find it. And like, there was yeah. one true theology and one, and you know, it took me a while after I left Christianity to realize that I was still looking for the one true way to be a humanist or, or to be a secular person. And increasingly I'm like, Oh no, the real liberation for me is the liberation of going like, there doesn't have to be one way to be a good person. Like mm -hmm. there might be a way that works really well for this person. And that doesn't work at all for this person. And that person should do it. And the other person shouldn't. 
Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's why this whole conversation about consciousness, I mean, it's not a change in consciousness for many people when they go from being an evangelical to an atheist. It's the same set of certainty principles that have just moved over into a different system. But there is something beyond that. And it just, it just takes time. Even, even like Joseph Campbell, he talks about passing through the gate into the underworld. And he says that the gate, um, is, can be described as a coincidence of opposites, which is one of the Christian mystics. And what are the coincidence of opposites? Things like good, evil, being, not being, maybe we could say God and not God, that something to something of the, the holding of the tension between the, between a kind of dualism has to be passed through in order to go further on the journey, in order for one's consciousness to evolve, whatever, even to grow up. You could yeah, you can't say. just jump from one side of the dualism to the other side and say, look, I, I've grown. Exactly. You're just passing between the, the two frames of the gate. You're not like going all the way through the threshold. And I don't know how much of that, by the way, is choice. Like you asked me that question early on. You're like, did you really have a choice? I don't know exactly, but there was a kind of courageous uh, way of just holding the tension and the not knowing that felt like taking steps. That's what I would say. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's true. Cause like it definitely, like, like I look back at it and I go like, given who I am, there was, I mean, what's remarkable to me is not that I left Christianity, but that I held on as long as I did. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, cause like, I mean, I had problems all the way through. I mean, it's a mark of how much I wanted to be in that, in that community. Um, mm. cause I worked really hard at it. Um, but, but, yeah. but, 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 but like ultimately probably if you would have pulled me aside at 23 and said, do you really see yourself making it to the finish line as a, you know, Bible thumping follower of Jesus Christ. And I don't, I don't think, I think if I was honest with you, I would say like, I, I might not make it. Yeah. I, already, I mean, yeah. there were problems I, right from you. the start. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm and, with you. Yeah. I probably would have said, I don't know if I'm, I still have one foot in and one foot out, even at 23. I was, that was more of my disposition from, from pretty early on, one foot in, one foot out. And then maybe a little bit of shame, like, oh, I need to, I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> I always then, thought that the one foot out was the foot that was really with the true Jesus. The, you know, the one uh, foot that was, the one foot that was in, like, was with what the, 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 the Christianity as we know, but like, do you know, there's more to it like this. We got to get back to the real stuff, the true stuff. And so like, when I was dissatisfied with the church, that my foot that was out thought it was dissatisfied with the church. And the real Jesus was on the outside of the church where the truth was. Yeah, I had some of that. Yep. That was a big part of the early days of Mars Hill, for sure. Yeah. Yep. And and, yep. Then, and then I realized like, oh, no, no, no. Like the foot that's out is really out. Like mm-hmm. I don't I don't think any of it's true in, 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 in that kind of factual way. And mm-hmm. I got to figure out what it means to pursue goodness in a world in which there's nobody coming to save me and there's nobody aiming me. And there's, you know, like there's where, where literally the only meaning in the universe is, is that which we create for ourselves. And, and, and again, like that I could be wrong. There could be an aim, mm-hmm. you know, there could be at the molecular structure, um, a, 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 a purpose to it all that I'm not seeing. Um, but mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis, I'm just trying to figure out like, you know, how do I make meaning in a world that, that doesn't necessarily offer me any, uh, preloaded. Um, mm-hmm. Hey, I'm going to let it. you go, baby. I'm going to let you go. All right. This, hey, I, thanks. I, I, so every fun. time I talk, every time I, I, and I'm serious about this, like every time I talk to you, I, I, I or listen to you. Cause I listen to that Pete Holmes thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do, I do like you more. Thanks. And that's, so and that's a good it. thing. That's a good thing to say, you know, cause <laughs> oftentimes it's the opposite. So, so thank <laughs> So, right. so we'll catch, we'll catch up soon. Okay. All right. All right appreciate man. it. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. All right. So there it was 
I sent. I hope that you sensed the chemistry. It's funny. I, I got a note from somebody after my my podcast with uh, with Jennifer Wright Berryman, who actually lives here in Cincinnati, and they said, D- "Do you guys have a thing going? Because like I sense some real." chemistry between you and i thought like i really like her she's part of our cincinnati humanist fellowship but you know no there's no there's none of that kind of chemistry um and uh and i thought but like maybe it's just the chemistry that happens when people really like each other so i I mean i hope you picked up on the chemistry between me and kent because i think he and i are going to end up being really good friends i'm really excited about going up and 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 getting a chance to talk um to his folks at some point in the near future um at the C3 thing. So, okay. So that's that. Now, oh yeah, I promised you the Ingersoll quote and here it comes. And uh, I really like this one. I, I just found it recently. And as I was doing my research to talk about suicide and, and here's Ingersoll's sort of reflection on suicide. It is but a few steps at most from the cradle to the grave, a short journey. The suicide hastens, shortens the path, loses the afternoon, the twilight, the dusk of life's day, loses what he does not want, what he cannot bear. In the tempest of despair, in the blind fury of madness, or in the calm of thought and choice, the beleaguered soul finds the serenity of death. Let us leave the dead where nature leaves them. We know nothing of any realm that lies beyond the horizon of the known, beyond the end of life. Let us be honest with ourselves and others. Let us pity the suffering, the despairing, the men and women hunted and pursued by grief and shame, by misery and want, by chance and fate, until their only friend is death. Yeah, I like that. I think it's really important that we understand that people come to the place that they come to and the way that they end from many different places. And we we very seldom understand all that's going on. And sometimes, especially with young people, it's tragic because we know that if we could have just delayed them for a moment, the fit would have passed, the, the, the moment would have passed and they would have had more and, and had a chance to see better. But I think it's also important for us to understand that we don't understand. We don't always understand. And we don't all feel things the same way and understand things the same way. And so there's a certain graciousness that Ingersoll communicates that I appreciate. And that I hope that we can communicate to others um, as we as we travel along. All right, I'll catch you next time. For more information about the work of Bar Campolo, please visit barcampolo.org. Hey, you could be larger than life.